Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Well, we're really glad to be back on the One Voice Podcast. Exciting to have more really cool, inspiring guests. Today we have a guest. I think this is actually, Mary, I think this is the farthest distance we've had a guest. Our guest is from Australia and his name is Brendan Watkins. Thank you for joining us today, Brendan. This is really um, exciting for us to have you with us. And I'm also just really honored that you'd be willing to share part of your story with our listeners today. Good to be here, Nicole. (laughs) Well, Brendan, um, your story caught my eye. Um, I had heard about it from some other organizations that I follow, obviously, um, along the lines of sexual abuse awareness, child abuse prevention, just advocacy and things like that. And I was just really um, intrigued by the courage that you showed in in writing this new memoir called Tell No One. Um, And I don't want to give any bit of a summary of your book. Um, I have a lot of questions and I have um, just a lot that I wanted to talk to you about, about your story, but I would love if you would be the one that could sort of share a little bit about what this book is about, what part of your story you're telling, and um, we can kind of just go, go from there. Sure. Um, Well, the, the the elevator pitch is a little like, um, I I was told I was adopted when I was eight years of age Mm -hmm. and um, from that day on was always super curious about my birth parents and who they were and where they were and what the circumstances uh, were of uh, them surrendering me. Uh, I also have a uh, adoptive brother who's a little older and intriguingly he had no interest in wanting to know any more about his birth family Mm. Um, and always felt a little separated, a little different, a little little outside of my family and Mm. being told you're adopted confirms all of those things and so all of maybe, you know, maybe it's true that all of the differences are magnified after you get that news. Long story short, I uh, was able in the 1980s to get access to my birth certificate, my original birth certificate, and it had the name of my birth mother. So I was in my 20s um, or late 20s and was uh, about to start a family, and we learned that my partner had this uh, complication, uh, an allergic reaction to anaesthetics that could be fatal, And it got me thinking very seriously about what the implications might be for my soon-to-be-born children or my first child. Mm -hmm. So I made contact with my mother. Long story short, she wanted nothing to do with me. Um, And I just couldn't take no for an answer. Eventually, um, after a lot of sleuthing, um, was told that she was a a nun. She was a Catholic nun. Mm -hmm. And... um, That started a journey of 30 years of trying to get to the bottom of what her story was and who my father was. Mm. Over the last 30 years, my mother's told me a whole gaggle of different stories about who my father was. 
And each time I got a little bit of information from her, very reluctantly, I, I chased it down and found it wasn't true. And that included hiring a private detective and doing all sorts of things to try and locate him mm. because I knew there was a secret, a shameful mm. secret. Okay. DNA in 2015 led to my father and it proved after um, many dead ends and running down rabbit holes that he was a Catholic priest and he mm. was a Catholic priest that I then learned over the last five years that my mother and he had a lot to do with each other. Wow. Long, so long, elevator, long, yeah. long elevator trip, isn't it? <laughs> right. But the, you know, just reading your book and hearing your story and listening to you, you know, just all, it, it seems to me it's like the first 30 years of your life, like was spent sort of searching for one of your parents and the next 30 to search for the other and now you have this information and it just, I mean, I'm just wondering what did that feel like? Like, I think, you know, a lot of this that we talk about, especially in this podcast is, you know, the secrecy of abuse and the silencing that's done by the church. And this isn't abuse, but it almost is, you know, yeah, the secrecy yeah. and the silencing and the almost and I almost wonder, was your mother groomed? And, you know, all these kinds of questions I have. What kind of questions did you have, like, surrounding that? Yeah, look, it's it, it's very complex. Um, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I should preface what I say with the fact that the, what I've written is what I know. And mm -hmm. my mother hasn't participated. She has she's still alive and she has wanted to have nothing to do with me and I, I perfectly accept and understand that but over the last five years when I was doing uh, my research um, I never intended to write a book mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted to do was understand where I came from and I thought I had a, a birthright to that information and I think my kids have a right to know who their birth parents are. Mm -hmm. I had two adoptive parents who were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people, and I've had a wonderful life. But mm -hmm. I found out who my father was, and it answered all of the questions. And when I started um, learning about um, him and his life and the fact that my mother and father had some sort of relationship over 30 years, I really wanted to get to... Uh, sorry, over 60 years, I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. I've always journaled and okay. every year write tens of thousands of words around what's going on. And this has been the stone in my shoe that I've always wanted to resolve. Mm -hmm. When I found out who my father was, I quit work and I wanted to research and find out the truth. And I had no intention of it becoming a book. The more children of priests I spoke to and the more mothers that I spoke to and the more I learned about what's been happening with the church and priests having children, the more I felt duty-bound to make it a book and publish the thing mm -hmm. uh, and to go public because it is abuse. Yeah. And my father and mother had a very com complicated relationship and even though many said, 
you know, that they were best friends, they were great mates, they went everywhere together. It was a relationship of inequality. Uh, my father first met my mother when she was about 15. Mm. He was 30 years older. And older. so okay. so there's a sexual element and equally as abhorrent is the spiritual abuse. Mm. She was a believer in God and still is and is devout. And my father was the hands and feet of God on earth. Mm. You can't say no to that. Right. And I learned that when I first got my birth certificate that my mother had me when she was 27. She wasn't a nun, but she'd entered a convent. And even though I was told she was in a convent, she wasn't. She wasn't. She'd resigned and ended up moving in with my father and cared for him for the last five or ten years of his life. But it is abusive. It's spiritually abusive, and in many, many cases, it is sexually abusive. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the research I was doing over the last five years was looking deeply into not only my parents' relationship, which is, which is a very unusual one, but looking into the lives of the children like me, the tens of thousands of children of Catholic priests who have been silenced, but also dealing with the mothers and learning that the relationship that my parents had was very similar. My mother was vulnerable. She was much younger. She was, she was not educated. She didn't have any financial resource and she didn't have a wonderful family background. So she was ex extremely vulnerable. This wasn't a love story. It could never be construed as a love story. And, uh, you know, probably the most um, complete research on this is by a German academic called, um, by the name of Doris Reisinger, who she calls it reproductive abuse, where mm -hmm. priests, and, you know, it's been conservatively estimated 20,000 plus children of priests. Wow. Um, but add to that uh, the fact that, uh, there are children, but there are also priests and many, many stories of priests who have coerced the mothers to abort and adopt. Mm -hmm. So there are no figures. The church has managed to silence people. Um, and, you know, tell me if I'm talking too much, but in 2014, the United Nations wrote to the Vatican and implored it to stop uh, making the mothers of priest children sign confidentiality agreements. Mm. And so they knew this the, was going on. Like that was yes. well known. This is, the, this is the United Nations. Wow. And they, they gave the Vatican uh, a timeline to respond in 2019 to assist the children of priests to stop silencing the children of priests, and the church hasn't responded. The church has never responded because this is a scandal in my view, as significant as the church abuse of minors yeah. scandal. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was always right puzzled there. as to why people hadn't gone public. And, you know, yeah. this is this is obviously a part of the reason that the mothers mm -hmm. have been silenced and many of the children don't know. And it's only now when um, freely available DNA testing, you know, with people like Ancestry and the like, 
is answering questions for people. It's only now that people um, are starting to find this information out. And so the church is madly <laughs> you know, running around trying to keep people quiet. And, yeah. and I felt an obligation to write the book and make this public. I'm really glad you did. I think it's something that is definitely not a well-known thing. And, you know, as widespread as, widespread as it clearly is, I mean, we need people like you talking about this because this is injustice. Mm. Yeah, look, it's it's certainly a growing issue since the book came out. The book's really only been out for a couple of months. Um, mm -hmm. I've received so many responses from people through social media, email uh, and the like, people coming forward at book signings and the like, saying, this is me, this is my story. Um uh, there was a TV show made with the ABC, um, an Australian, the national broadcaster, which you know very quickly got a million views, and as a result of it getting a mil million views, it's on on YouTube. If people Google my name and ABC, um, okay, I, I've had communication beginning to get communication from all around the world with people who have got the not the exact same story as mine, but these stereotypes of a vulnerable, much younger woman and a priest comes along and this happens. And the children are silenced, they're told a pack of lies, they don't know their family history. Um, and I, I believe this will increasingly become a, a yeah. larger and larger issue for the church and, and why, as I say, why I felt honour bound to, mm -hmm. to make it public. Do you see how it is it very common too for the the mother, the the woman in the story to um be silenced as well? Or because it sounds like with your birth parents, they continue to have a relationship, but that was probably because you were then adopted and out of the picture they could. But is that pretty yeah. common or or are some of these mothers and the, you know, the women in the story, are they often like, you know, outcasts then at that point just to protect the the priest? I'm just wondering where do they go in the story, you know? Yeah, look, there's a few more common scenarios. So there is a lot of abortion um, okay. that has occurred. Um the the confidentiality agreements, the NDAs that are signed, and mm -hmm. you know, I make the point: these are the tools of of abusers. You know, this is right. what Harvey Weinstein does, That's uh, right. and this is what the Catholic Church is doing. Mm -hmm. um, and the Southern Baptist of, Convention. Yeah, mm -hmm. a, a part of the uh, one of the clauses is that you can't talk about it. You can't even confirm you've signed it. And uh, because the women, by and large, are usually vulnerable, um, uh, they get pregnant, they go to the church, the priest is moved on to another parish, and the bishop in charge will say, you know, you should put the uh, child into foster care or adoption. And in some instances, the mothers refuse and they keep the child. And because, you know, they're borderline destitute, the church may put a roof over their head. They might um, allow the church to be educated within a Catholic school. But the risk is always, or the fear, uh, and it's implied or in writing contractually, that if you talk and you make public the father of the child, 
you won't have a roof over your head anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very common stereotype. And they're told that you can't tell the child who the father mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Some children have had this strange relationship with their priest father, but they know him as an uncle or whoever it might be, a relative or family friend or whatever. And, and on some occasions, they're in their life. But more often than not, the child is removed from the mother, um, foster, foster care and adoptions. And, mm -hmm. and they're, because they're believers, you know, I can't stress enough this, that the, the magnification of the shame of spiritual abuse. Yeah. They believe in Christ. They believe the priest is the representative of the church. Mm. Uh, it's impossible to say no, and so they continue following their instruction. And if they're actively difficult, an NDA, a confidentiality agreement, some sort of financial settlement comes into play, and they cannot tell anyone. Uh, the book is all called of this tell parallels. No one. Yeah, yeah, and all of this to me parallels the abuse in the church as well. Like it's all, you know, seeing a pastor getting sent to another church, you know, and mm -hmm. there's no checks or balance. No one's checking up. So then the abuse continues. And I'm thinking then the priest continues the same thing. There's another child who's out there and doesn't know whose father is. And I'm wondering also, okay, I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, and I'm wondering also, do you feel now, this is just me thinking out loud, but do you feel that this sort of system at play could also be a part of the abuse of the kids as well? Because they're untouchable. These priests are untouchable and they have all the power, all the control. They can silence anyone. I can just picture, I mean, because I hear stories of survivors all the time, I can just picture this situation you know where the child thinks that his father the priest is actually his uncle but in fact he's not and then the uncle priest is the one that ends up abusing him because he's already silenced him once yeah, so easy yeah it's the grooming well, already at play yeah doris reisinger's research and there's another academic stephen de Wegner, who's done a lot of um research around this yet very often uh it's child abuse as well so okay. the child um, uh, is conceived when the woman is, um, you know, often a, a student at school uh, or certainly within a parish um, and uh, a, a child is conceived. Yeah, that, that, it, it, it goes hand in glove. Okay. Um, and, uh, and this, you know, age difference, um, you know, 30 mm -hmm. years uh, is the gap between my parents. Um, but... Um, in nearly all the cases I know of uh, and people I've spoken to personally, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the gap's not that big, but it, it, it's about power, it's about coercion, it's about spiritual abuse. And yeah. sorry, th th this is off topic, but I, I need to squeeze in if I could, Nicole. But yeah. one of the things that really made me want this book to become public and the information I was learning to become public is there was an academic in London, a child of a priest, her name's Sarah Thomas, who was doing a PhD research specifically on the children of priests, and she spoke to 100 children. And mm -hmm. she found in her research that 56% of them had attempted suicide or had mm -hmm. suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. 
and the ones that the knew that they knew they were a child of a priest. Yes. So that the others, my peers, who had this horrific news. I, you know, I think for me, I was older when I found out. I was, you know, settled in my life, um, and I wasn't a believer. I'm an atheist. Um, for those that believe, you know, nearly all of them are raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an enormous trauma, and 56% of t- attempted suicide or had suicidal ideation, and and that, you know, it fits in very closely to the sort of stats that are uh, relevant to to those that are that have suffered child abuse as well. It's it, they're horrific statistics that people aren't aware of. That's right. Yeah. Well, and just the shame involved and the, you know, the wanting to know who you are. I mean, that's just a baseline need as a human being. Of where did I come from? And, you know, who yeah. who are my people? And to not have that real security or knowledge and to um, to know that that's been a secret and, and you have been a secret, that that is a real trauma. It is. It is, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to pause a moment to tell you about this community called Unleash that we keep referring to. If it sounds like a secret club, that's because it is. But if you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse or sexual trauma of any kind, you are personally invited. Unleash is an eight-week e-course. It features film, storytelling, personal contemplation exercises, and my favorite part, a safe online space where we meet virtually in small support group settings led by myself and other trauma experts where we openly discuss this lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. It's kind of like a book club, but like a really precious one, (laughs) a place where questions are welcome and your story, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, is safe. Maybe you've experienced some healing, but you long to be unleashed. I hope you'll consider joining us. Each group is limited to eight survivors. So head over to our registration page now and grab a seat. The website is imonevoice.org slash unleash. And by the way, if you aren't interested in the support group part, but you want to just work through the videos and the ebook content at your own pace, we have that option too. It's right there on the website as well. This road of healing can feel pretty long, but we don't have to walk it alone. That's why we're here. And I hope you'll join us at one of our upcoming groups. More info at imonevoice.org slash unleash. So many of the people I know that are children of priests and mothers of the children of priests you know, I'm guessing, but I, you know, I would estimate that at least half of a uh, half of them are still undergoing some sort of psychological counselling. Mm-hmm. Um, many have been raised in difficult financial circumstances. They haven't had the opportunity of education, um, and they don't necessarily have the resources or supports around them to be to be able to deal with it. And you know, I was outraged. Mm-hmm talking to so many of my peers and finding that, you know, they've been having um, uh, uh, psychological support for decades of their life and they're paying for it out of their own pocket. 
and they don't have any disposable income to spare and the church is taking no responsibility. The church is denying, uh, recognising them as they come forward. And there are many people I know of that have gone to the church and they completely deny the truth. They completely deny still DNA evidence. And so, you know, one of my friends has gone off and got a higher level, you know, the, uh, I can't think of the name, but there's a, you know, the, 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 uh, level of DNA that is used in the American legal system that gets people out of death row. Um, uh, she has got, and the church is still uh, refusing to recognise the priest as the child, and this is going on all the time. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that That's the game. They're waiting for people to die, and mm. uh, it's what they've done with um, child abuse of minors. They're waiting for people to die. They slow the process. They drag things, things through the courts. Uh, they lose a case, they appeal, and it goes on and on and on to people, to the point where people are either, you know, uh, financially depleted where they can't continue or emotionally depleted where, you know, the fight becomes too great and they have to walk away from it. Or very often the witnesses and those involved, the mothers and the priests, die. That's the game. That's what they're doing. That's just horrible. Do you feel like, the sharing of stories, you know, is is the answer here. Do you feel like there's hope for awareness to a level of change in the systems? I mean, what what do you think? Or is it more just like we're going to tell our stories, the ones that can tell it for healing purposes? Uh, I'm pessimistic about the church changing. Sure. Um, Understandably. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to change the church. I suppose um, I've spoken to so many children of priests who are quite damaged, and I felt that they needed a voice. And uh, and equally, I'm not setting myself up as any martyr or great person. It's been very therapeutic for me to talk, and it's been very therapeutic. Every time I have these discussions, they're kind of hard to do but I feel so much better because mm. every time there's a podcast or an interview or an article in the newspaper, I, paper, I hear from people and I hear how freeing it is for them that someone's come forward and everyone's Absolutely. different. They may or may not want to come forward. They may or may not want to speak publicly, but to know that there's others that are doing it and it mm. might free up some people. Like I have no relationship with my mother, but she has two grandchildren, these two wonderful, wonderful people in their 20s. They are her only biological grandchildren that she misses out on. Yeah. And, and, I, and I understand because I believe she's a victim of abuse and I believe right. I'm a secondary victim of abuse. Yeah. But I hope that there's other mothers that may be able to deal with it and tell the truth and connect to their children or to reveal even to a friend or a psychologist or a doctor or somebody that can help them and free them from the trauma. The pain is caused from the secrecy and the secrecy equals, um, the, the secrecy creates this psychological disturbance. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so closely tied to shame um, if you have right. such a, Horrific thing, particularly if you're a believer, um, you have to share it. You have to release it. And um, 
you know, this, the book and these discussions help me enormously too. Uh, so, yeah, it's not a fun thing, but uh, you know, because there are tens of thousands. Doris Reisinger believes there's, you know, six figures that it's well over a hundred thousand children oh, wow. that are that are wrestling with these things. And thinking about and, that percentage you shared earlier, just of the effects that trauma has on, you know, an individual's mind and spirit. I mean, it's just so sad. And then on the flip side, I just think, wow, what a beautiful human being you are to even think about your mother that way. The compassion you have for her, even through the fact that she will not own the story. Like how amazing that is about you. Where does that come from? Um, oh, look, I was angry for a long, long time with my mother. Sure. Um I'm no saint. Um, I, you know, I, I harbored great anger and I needed to understand it. And what I've done in the last five years, this research and this book is about understanding her scenario. And my mother is trying to protect herself. Mm-hmm. She's trying to survive. Um, it's only in the last five years. I, it, look, it's only in the last few years that I've realized that's the truth of her story. Mm-hmm. And I represent an enormously painful part of her history. Yeah. And it's something that reverberates through her life in a, in a negative way. She's not a bad person. She's a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's doing, you know, she's doing what she needs to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, she's wow. without, she's without resources and, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, 56% of people, of the mothers and the children have uh, attempted suicide or thought about it. There's many, many people in the uh, situation that have killed themselves. They're not here any longer. So I absolutely respect her right to uh, deal with this in the way she does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just hope that there's other people that... Um, might be able to get some benefit from it and forgive their mother, forgive their father, maybe, um, even though I'm not forgiving too many of the priests. But, um, yeah. you know, there, there is hope. You get, you, there's a way of moving on and, mm. um, you know, everyone's got their own different way. And I, I suppose the book is my description to others of um, how I dealt with it, how I made sense of it and mm. what I did to leave it in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said it really well. And you said, you know, we're all doing what we need to do to survive. We're all, you know, playing different roles and different stories of hardship. And that really is kind of the bottom line for humanity is yeah. that yeah. and having compassion and empathy for each other as we do that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, the bonus is you feel as though you're helping, you know, you, you feel as though you're helping others. Um and you know that's one of the you know fundamental steps you can take to to set to sanity and balance is mm-hmm. um, to be useful. Um, and I'm trying to feel useful. I'm not trying to be somebody I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. There's you know I've, it's been really heartening getting so many letters and communications from people that you know have been victims of abuse within the church or um, survivors of sexual abuse. Mm. of priests and other children of priests and that's sort of the affirmation that um, 
it's helping some people and so yeah. it's a worthwhile thing to do but but I do need you know part of this writing the book and part of this doing the interviews and talking about it is eventually you know maybe this year if not certainly next year putting a line in the sand and moving forward because I've spent five years intensively working on this and writing about this I need to leave it in the past and I need to start looking into the future and I need to stop looking in the rearview mirror um well I need to live in the present and um mm. and I think you know everyone eventually needs to come to that point where as hard as it is and as much as it might play on your mind you need to let it go and the book is for me the, the first step in letting it go and leaving it in mm. the past mm. I love that I read somewhere where you had said trauma is a thief of time and it kind of goes hand. It really struck me when I read it. I had to read it like five times and I had to take a deep breath, but it really, it kind of goes hand in hand with what you're saying. You know, it is a thief of time, but at some point you take back the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, admitting it's not perfect and no one's life's perfect you know everyone's mm. got bumpy bumpy stages but um you know with this sort of abuse be it sexual or spiritual um there's an inherent magnification of shame mm. yeah absolutely. and so it's very difficult to share and it's very difficult to you know the book for me is a, a sort of an exorcism you know <laughs> To yeah. get it out of my system, to get it into the public, and yeah. talking talking about it and writing about it, it loses its power. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I definitely resonate with that. It is the truth. It's like once you say it, once you write it, it's not something you're holding inside anymore. It's not just yeah. me and the thing anymore. Now it's out. <laughs> yeah, now the exactly. light can shine on it and. Now, hopefully, we can keep moving and not carry it, not carry that burden, that That's heavy it. burden and, anymore. And so many of the children of priests I've spoken to over the years have have said, "I thought I was the only one." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought I was oh, the I only bet. one. But you know, I, I googled when I first found out mm-hmm. because it was such a shameful secret, yeah. um, and saw I, you know, I think the book says that you know there were sixty eight million. Uh, results that came up in Google wow. um, and and you know found this organization in Ireland that um, supposedly represents the children of priests and had mm. a lot of um, dealings with it and um, it didn't end too fabulously well in the end uh, because they didn't quite uh, end up being the organization I hoped they were this is Covid mm. International um but to connect with others is the important thing to get to connect with others that um, carry the same burden is important to share the stories um Mm -hmm. and and to try and bring some conclusion or at least you know a voice uh, someone at the end of the typewriter to to confirm reaffirm uh and and share the load well, and I was going to yeah. say for the two of you, 
you know, turning, you know, such a, a painful situation into, like you said, Brendan, into purpose and being useful, the word that you used and being a gift to other people because courage is contagious and giving other people, whether they say it on a public platform or they write a book or they even share it with a friend or a therapist or whatever, it's giving them the, the courage to be able to call it out what it is and who knows where their healing journey can lead because of your book, because of your book, because of the podcast, because of an interview, because of an article. And it's like, and you'll never hear from some of them where others you will hear from, but just knowing that you're putting that out into the world is so incredible um, and just so, um, you know, so honorable and it's just amazing. Um, yeah. So it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's been others um, in recent times here that have gone public and, you know, uh, new people that are stepping forward and saying these things and, um, you know, like the abuse of minors, um, it's a very long, slow road and, you know, it will take many, many years, I think, for the church to recognise this, you know, the phenomena of the children of priests. But DNA is never going to stop. And, you know, there are billions of connections now through the four main DNA sites. Um, so they're, they're desperately trying to, you know, keep the lid on the bottle. But um, there's no wow. denying the truth eventually. And, mm. um, you know, they're playing the long game. Uh, they're waiting for people to die out um, uh, and, you know, limitations within the legal system so that people can't make restitution claims legally against the church is is, is part of that thinking. Um, but there are so many of us out there and I'd like to think that, you know, maybe the book and maybe me speaking will be you know, that little snowball that you tip off the, you know, the top of the mountain and yeah. um, as the mm-hmm. years pass, it'll get bigger and bigger and um, yeah. that, it, no that it might be one of the one of the the initial elements that start a movement that um, so. that, that ultimately yeah. give people some, some peace and some freedom. Um, That's right. What the church does about it, who knows? Um, I'm not here to change the church. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, should, I should also say, I've met a lot, so many parishioners, people that knew my father, people that knew my mother. You know, my mm-hmm. adoptive parents were really devout. This isn't an issue for the parishioners. Everyone I've met that's a devout Catholic have have been absolutely fabulous and actually really accepting of me and my story. Mm-hmm. It's, the, the problem isn't the parishioners, the people that believe. The problem is the administration of the church. That's right. The priests are only human. They're just they're men with feet of clay in this misogynistic, ancient Bronze Age institution. It's the bishops and the cardinals that cover this over and silence everybody. They move the priests on somewhere else. They don't want this stain in their parish. It's the it's the administration of the church. It's it's not the parishioners. I'm not having a go. At people that believe they've been let down by the institution. Yeah. It's, the parishioners have been the nicest people and the most accepting people, the devout yeah. Catholics. I'm so it's glad. the institution that's the problem. Yeah. Like all the little people have to rise up. <laughs> they do, yeah. Work. And, yeah. you know, I've been, not that I went often, but I've been to a ch- few church services 
you know, over this last five years and seeing these nice old ladies, you know, it's usually just the nice old ladies that are left, um, putting their, you know, their pension money into the collection box and thinking how much of that money is going to be used in court cases against people oh that have been God. abused abused by the priests or or other children of priests, how much of that money goes to lawyers? Mm. Wow, that makes you sick to think about, right? Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. And those are the same well <laughs> and those are the same little old ladies who would sit beside you and tell you they believed you. They do, and they have. Yeah. Yeah. But changing the system is a very big job. You know, I just think, wow, your courage to be a face, a voice, and a name to this is just a pioneer work. And it matters. And I'm personally really grateful that you were willing to step into that role because it's not easy, I know. And it brings up a lot, as healing as it can be. I know it's also very hard and sometimes triggering and um yeah, it's not for the week. And I'm just grateful for your strength, Brendan. And I just hope our listeners will support your book. Um, they'll buy it. I just really do encourage you guys to check out the book is called Tell No One. It's by Brendan Watkins. And Brendan, where can people maybe follow you or get more information on you? Could you share maybe your website or yeah, a video so, you'd want um, to see or yeah. Yeah, the the website is brendanwatkins.com.au. Um, and the book, probably the easy place is, is Amazon. Okay. But there's an audio book and Kindle and all the digital versions, but, uh, there's a lot of links on the website, um, for where to buy it. But equally, there's a fair bit of research, um, around the children of priests and the academic research and links to articles if people are interested in, you know, going down some of those rabbit holes if there's other people mm -hmm. that, you know, have found. Yes, I uh, was. These... And you have a lot of info on your website. So many articles. I was astounded because yeah. I didn't know about this until I found you. And then I was like, wow, I'm finding hundreds of others already just through your website. So I was really grateful for those resources. I think it's really helpful for those interested. It's been great to talk, Nicole. Yeah, you too. On a final note, I want to say I'm loving audiobooks where the author reads their own story. And if you read it in your accent, do you? You read it yourself? <laughs> uh, well, I pitched, yes, there were four um, voiceover artists that pitched and I was one. And, um, and I was involved it. in the final decision and I came dead last. Uh, so the guy that read it <laughs> what a um, mess. has has done a lot of Aussie books, you know, sort of Aussie men war stories, and and he's got this beautiful voice. He okay. and, and he he does it so much better than I could ever have done it. So um, yeah, no, I failed that one. I thought I sounded okay, but when you hear your voice <laughs> next to uh, you know people that know what they're doing, okay. um, yeah, I didn't didn't make the cut. Unfortunately, that's how I feel next to Mary. <laughs> yeah mary's got it all together she does she's got that voice oh yeah. well that's too bad well i'll still listen to it well we would vote yeah. for you brendan we, yep. would, vote we you. would vote for you you guys just like aussie accents <laughs> we do we absolutely do <laughs> yep uh, 
Well, thank you, Brendan. This was a really, really good conversation. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful yeah. for your position and your voice. And um, just know that we're going to be cheering for you every step of the way. And um, we'll put all the info and a link in the um, show notes so people can follow you and definitely learn more. I know this is a topic that really needs uncovered further. And um, I'm glad that we have a community here that is up to the challenge. Exactly. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Mary. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.